Hey there, it's Chris Rivas, and this is Brown Enough, stories between black and white. Before we jump into the episode today, I want to remind you that if you're looking for a great gift this holiday season, check out my book. It's also called Brown Enough. This book is a celebration of brownness, about embracing one's true self, but it's also a call to all bodies of culture to engage in the conversation of identity. It's about belonging. It's about being seen. It's a book about taking up space and self-worth. I know all of you know at least one person who needs to know they are enough. Because you are. Find it anywhere you get your books. And if you want to hear me read passages of the book, you can also listen and download the audiobook. Trust me, it's worth it. Now, on with the show. My best friend, it had... I don't think this is because he's white, but he happens to be white, you know, and when he was born, his his uncle got him a really beautiful stock portfolio. No, that sounds like it's because he's white. This is Mandy Woodruff Santos. I'm talking with her today about money and specifically learning about money when you're young. So I'm just curious, do you have a story like that? Oh, gosh. Wait, a famous or sorry, a rich uncle getting me a stock portfolio? (laughs) No. I did have some funny uncles, but none that gave me any useful advice for my life. Like Mandy, I also don't have that rich uncle who built a stock portfolio for me. I do, however, have my uncle Mark, who co-signed my college loan. Thank you, Theo Mark. I know I owe you one. I know I owe you thousands. My earliest personal finance memories with my mother in particular was going to JCPenney in search of a bigger wallet because she couldn't fit all of her credit cards in the wallet that she had. And I'm talking about Mm. it looked like a filing cabinet with a zipper. That's basically the size of wallets that my mom was after. Now, I'm sure Mandy isn't alone here. I know my parents have lived paycheck to paycheck for periods of our lives. Now they're doing a bit better. And Mandy is more successful than ever. Today, Mandy is also the host of a podcast called Brown Ambition, where she and co-host Tiffany Alicia share financial advice and wisdom about building wealth. They see their show as a safe place for black and brown folks to talk about money and share tools and resources for becoming more financially literate. And that is important work, y'all. Just last year, a finance organization reported that black and brown communities are falling behind on retirement savings and wealth building. Two-thirds of Hispanic households aren't saving any money or receiving any type of employee financial benefits, like 401ks, healthcare savings, accounts, or stock options. Every penny is used to survive. And in 2019, the median wealth of black households was just a fraction of white households. This got me thinking, why are black and brown families lagging behind in building wealth? Are we not understanding how important it is to save up money for the future? Are we not receiving the resources we need to comprehend financial literacy? And so I decided to talk to Mandy about financial empowerment, you know, credit cards and my personal favorite subject, student loan debt. I can't wait for y'all to hear what she has to say. My high school did not have a personal finance course. I mean, 
We didn't even have our own cafeteria. I'm serious. We shared it with four other schools. But damn, I wish I had that knowledge or any knowledge for that matter. It wasn't until graduating college that I came to the realization that I needed to understand how important it was for me to be aware of things like credit cards and debt. Mandy says she was aware of credit cards from a young age, but growing up with her single mom, they weren't something she had a great relationship with. Credit cards were a part of our lives. You know, they had to be. I, you know, I, I was that kid who was really embarrassed because we would go to, you know, the grocery store and my mom's card would get declined or, you know, and I would have to watch her take this off, you know, take that off and feel that deep shame because it was me who put the, you know, the Haagen-Dazs ice cream in the cart. And that's like five bucks, you know, that probably put us over the edge. So I definitely didn't grow up in a household where finances were anything particularly exciting or fun to talk about. It was stress and anxiety. And it took me until my mid-20s until I found the power and joy of financial empowerment. Is financial empowerment wealth? Yeah, no, for me, it was knowledge. It was it was feeling like in my early 20s, you know, I graduated college in the Uh, in 2009. uh, So it was a great recession. And I also studied journalism. So I was like a double, you know, two strikes against me when it came to creating a livelihood. Because at the time, I mean, jobs were just really scarce for journalists. No one knew if the industry was going to make it and what was happening. So lots of layoffs were happening. And for me, I I moved to New York City. I I did manage to get a job in spite of the challenges um, and how few and far between they were. I found a job, but I was laid off three months after moving here. You know, bright-eyed, bushy-tail. I think I had bought my very first real cell phone that wasn't held together by scotch tape and hopes and prayers. And I had like a mattress, you know, and I was living with a friend and got laid off, just found myself really financially desperate not to have to move back to Georgia and move back in with my dad or my mom or whoever I could, you know, find a find a room with. I was kind of angry. I mean, I was like, why am I I did everything right. You know, I think a lot of people do. What's wrong with me? What am I missing here? And that's when I started to do a lot more research into debt, saving, spending, investing, and fortunately for me, I found my way into personal finance through storytelling. Cause that's what I am. I'm as a journalist and a writer, a storyteller. And I was so fortunate to be able to find a job where I, it was my job to educate myself about finance so I could write about it. Um, and I'm talking about becoming a personal finance reporter um, in 2011. That was my first introduction. And then for me, it was addicting. It was addicting to know shit. <laughs> it was addicting to understand what the hell a 401k was and to be and to be the obnoxious sister, friend, cousin who was like, y'all got to do this. Like, you know about matches? <laughs> you know, what's show me your employee benefit statement. I bet you're leaving money on the table. Um, and to realize that we really have been left out, that these systems and tools that have helped So many of the majority make great wealth for generations. No one ever stopped to tell us how, and it's easy to see why. Who's going to work? Who's going to do the work if we all know that there's another way? When you said JCPenney, I thought you were going to say that your first credit card was JCPenney because my first credit card was a (laughs) Macy's credit card. Macy's was my first credit card. What was yours? Oh, Dot Macy's. You are Dominican. 
My first credit card, I, I was like, it was 2008. I was interning in Manhattan, and they got me in Union Square outside of that Bank of America on the corner across from Jamba Juice, if it's even still there. There was a guy outside, and he's like, you can get your college. I went to a big state school in Georgia, University of Georgia. And he's like, you can get your college logo and the bulldog on your card, and it seemed really <laughs> cute. And all my friends were getting one. So my first limit, I think, was $300, but it was one of those college credit cards. And ooh, it took me all all of like 24 hours to max that sucker out um, and then find out what fan- financing charges were. And that was real fun. How important is your credit score? It's pretty damn important. It's sort of like getting a good GPA in high school or in college. You know, it's a culmination of your credit history. And in our society, there's basic things that you want to do with a credit score, like get an apartment. I didn't find out that I had bad credit until I moved to New York and tried to apply for an apartment. They ran my credit and they said, oh, no, honey, you have a poor credit score. And if it turns out I had some fraudulent credit card on my file and I just didn't know because I'd never checked my score before. Um, Now... Credit can be, like I said, it's the great, it's like the trickiest thing ever because they want you to use it. You have to use it to get a good score. So So you can do things. It's It's insane. (laughs) You have to use it, but don't use it the wrong way. And by the way, we're not going to tell you how to use it. So absolutely, if you're going to use credit to build it so you can do things like qualify for a mortgage, get that apartment that you want. Even some jobs, not all, not every job may check your credit before you, you know, as a part of your background check. So it, it does matter. Um, but you have to understand how to nurture it and how to not let it get out of control so that you get the benefit of it, but not the other side of it, which is that it can really destroy your finances. Are there simple ways to increase it? Yeah, very simple. So can we go back to your JCPenney credit card? Yeah. Wait, no, Macy's. You had Macy's. a Macy's credit card. <laughs> yeah. So if baby Chris had taken that Macy's credit card and maybe purchased, you know, I don't know, whatever you purchase from Macy's, like shoes every month. I don't know if you need a pair of shoes every month. All you had to do was make one small purchase on that card and pay it off in full every month. And you would have a perfect credit score probably within a few years because it does take time. Um, the simplest thing anyone can do when it comes to building credit when you don't already have a lot of credit debt is to use a credit card, pay it off in full, and let that be it. Use it, pay it off in full, rinse and repeat. You have to use it because they want to see that you've actually paid in full, right? So that's the trick. Use it, but don't use too much. If you have a $1,000 limit, you don't have a $1,000 limit. Don't tell yourself that. You only have a limit for what you can afford to pay in full at the end of the month. So you have to take that limit and make a new one for yourself and make sure that you understand your new limit. Why is it so easy to build up credit card debt? I mean, this country is built on, you know, people living beyond their means. You know, it's, there are so many families, including mine growing up, who were doing everything right but still not able to afford a lifestyle that seemed not even that luxurious, but just like a basic necessities type thing. Be able to afford childcare and to afford to pay for your children's education um, and to do the 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 things that could help your children thrive, tutoring and access to additional education and special camps and things like that. There's so many families who can't do that. But yet we are being told, especially in the business world, 
you need to have all these things in order to be able to get a job here. You need to have that college degree. You need to have this certification. You know, you need to have gone to that elite school to even be considered, you know, worthy of this opportunity. But at what cost? So, of course, families are finding it impossible to make those ends meet with what they have coming in. So they do turn to credit card debt. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't people out there like me who were just like, woohoo, I want to go to New Year's Eve in Vegas. I'm going to charge the flight on this brand new Bank of America, you know, UGA branded credit card. But um, there are just as many people who are using it for groceries, you know, using that to pay for field trip fees because they can't stand to not let their kids not have that same experience. So um, it's extremely nefarious and extremely expensive. And oh, my God, is it profitable? So, of course, of course, these companies want to keep us in debt. It's how they become billionaires, right? In my book, I have a chapter called The American Dream, where I talk about my own student loan debt. But I also talk about how in 2020, American billionaires like Jeff Bezos became even richer after receiving loans from the government to stay out of debt. Loans financed by American taxpayers. That's us, y'all. Everyone listening. Mandy's right. Billionaires really do become billionaires because of us. You said we live beyond our means, which makes me ask the question, how much of that is related to assimilation? Because I think about my parents, and I often felt like my parents were trying to live above their means. You know, they wanted to look like the people they wanted to hang out with and their and their bosses and the places that they wanted to live. And um, and debt becomes a part of that. And, and well, here's the question. Uh, it's a complicated question. Even in my own experience, I just bought a new car and I kept asking myself, like, did I get a new car because I wanted to show that I was capable of having this car and showing up to work with this? Like, because everyone else has this kind of nice car or or is this something that that I need or want? Like, how much of it is the show versus, you know, like the game we're all playing to look like something versus something we can actually do. And yeah, what is that dance? Yeah, I think it takes a long time to develop that strong inner self to be able to make decisions for yourself and no one else. And I think it's human nature to to want to assimilate, like you said, and to want to fit in. Um, you know, I went to, after my parents got divorced when I was 10, my mom, my mom out of her siblings... I don't know. I, I think it was wonderful. She was kind of wild and, you know, she married a black guy and had black babies and she was from Wisconsin and like kind of a conservative. I think she's badass, but she was kind of a black sheep of her family. And I can look back on that and recognize that. And one of her brothers, who was a successful real estate developer, shout out Uncle Jim, he let her rent a house in a nice neighborhood that he owned. And that's how I got to go to a nicer school. Um, and I was... Like, I mean, we, I don't want to pretend like we were dirt, dirt, dirt poor, but we definitely were the, one of the poorer families. I felt like one of the poor kids at school, you know, there were girls who would make you feel bad for repeating outfits. Uh, I can't explain the anxiety of the terror of having to go into school knowing I wore the thing that I was wearing two days before because it's like all I had. Um, and yeah, and my mom, she would... 
she would she would value like shopping with us and going to JCPenney, even if you're going to put it on a credit card. It still felt like a, a source of joy because it made us feel like we fit in. You know, we go to the we'd go to the mall or to the the strip mall. I'm from Georgia, so they were a big deal. You know, and you would go into Bath and Body Works or go into, um, yeah, or go into Belk. Belk was big shit back in my day. <laughs> and go to the Clinique counter, you know? And that was a real treat for us was sometimes if you went to the Clinique counter and mom would buy one little tiny lip balm or lipstick or something and they'd give you a little goodie bag. And getting to bring that goodie bag to school the next day and very, like, very um, conspicuously, like, put my pencils in it and, you know, just, like, walk around with my little Clinique happy bag. Because it was, that was the people I was around. Um you're like, but you this... drop it in the middle of class. Oh, excuse me. I have to, uh, <laughs> I have to put this pencil in here. I'm not kidding. And you had to have, you had to put your stinky gym clothes in the right bag from the mall. It had to be like an American Eagle bag or an Abercrombie & Fitch bag. Don't let it be a tote bag or don't let it be a, you know, like that's the kind of like, you know, and it, but it consumed your mind as, you know, a teenager. And but man, the beauty for me was getting out of that environment and going through college and traveling and seeing the world and realizing what actually mattered. And I definitely credit the fact that I was able to build wealth at a young age with the fact that I became really strong in myself. Mandy's personal experience speaks to me and my soul. And most recently, I walked away from a deal that looked fantastic on paper. And that's because I knew there were other great things coming my way. Things that would change my life for the better. But also because I am putting myself first. I'm thinking of what will make me happy. It's also what my father told me to do first before anything. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Mandy and I will talk about student debt and whether going into debt for a college degree is actually worth it. Don't go away. And we are back with Mandy Woodruff Santos. Today, I can say that I am a fairly successful person. I mean, I'm an actor, I have a book out, and I'm the host of this podcast. But all that doesn't add up to the $244,000 of student loan debt I got. That is right. $244,000 of student loan debt. Private acting school will do that to you. And I still get those calls every once in a while reminding me to make that payment. And my uncle and my parents, they get the calls too. So I needed to ask Mandy about how common this is. Are black and brown communities uniquely impacted by debt and why? Do you think our communities understand how long debt can stay with you? Uh, yes. And or how dangerous is debt? You know, I think our, in our community, and I think that debt has just become a constant companion. So it becomes a joke, you know, oh, don't pick up the phone. You know, don't pick up the landline. It's always they always give the number to the landline. That's where debt collectors call. I knew I knew that growing up, and it kind of just became like you know a fact of life. Can't get that apartment because my credit's bad, or I need you to co-sign this because my credit is bad. Um, you know, for me, I think that what's really important is looking at these communities and looking at what businesses get to thrive in those communities. Like you're not going to find cash checking or check cashing storefronts. Um, and the Upper East Side, 
But you go up on the one train to Dykeman in the little Dominican Republic where my husband grew up, it's like on every block, those ca- those check-cashing places, you know, um, that charge money for you to get your money. And it blows and boggles the mind. But these places are thriving on the backs of poor, low-income, black and brown households, right? Um, and beyond that, pawn shops, you know. Always in the same neighborhood. Always in the same neighborhood. And our... Yes, and taking advantage of the lack of knowledge and the lack of resources and the lack of options that we have to put our communities even further in debt. And then having the audacity or the caucasity to tell us we need these expensive-ass six-figure college degrees in order to thrive in your version of America. (laughs) Yes. And then, like, people like to talk about student debt cancellation and how it's only going to, you know, help the— the the ones who are lucky enough and smart enough to go to college who are already privileged in some way. But I'm like, do you have any black friends who graduated from college before you say things like that? Because black and brown communities, like student debt is a crisis in our communities, you know, and we're doing the same thing that you're doing. And yet we're graduating with six-figure debt, unable to go and make a down payment on that condo or that house unable to make career choices for the hell of it for our own desires and our own hopes and dreams because we got to make a paycheck to pay the student, you know, debt bill. So it does piss me off when people don't really acknowledge how how racism and how that has proliferated, you know, the debt crisis in these households and how difficult it is to get out of it, you know, in these communities when when it's very nefarious and it piles up on you and those interest rates and then the debt collectors and then your credit score tanks and all of a sudden you can't do anything and you feel trapped. I know the many, many sleepless nights and mornings of of worrying about my student debt, you know, of my my co-signers calling me saying, what are you going to do about this? You know, and Mm. that is like a horrible feeling to think these people believed in me and I let them down. Uh, because of this story of the American dream that tells me to go get the best education possible, you know, and you go and you get into this elite university and uh, you feel sort of betrayed by it, stabbed in the back by that dream. Um, Is college even worth it today? (laughs) No. Um, I mean, I'm saying, oh, no, like, oh, shit, this question. You know, I got into kind of an argument with my little brother. My little brother is my great debater. He's always saying stuff that bothers me because it makes me think differently. And it's very annoying, but very useful. And, um, you know, what's crazy is he and I went to the same school in Georgia, University of Georgia. I went and graduated in 2009. He graduated in like 2013 or something. I had $8,000 when I graduated. He had fifty. Just in a few years, that's how much more the cost was, how much less financial aid was available. Thank goodness he went into sales and made big commission checks and he could pay it off and all that. But, you know, he was talking to me and I think I was trying to defend college and he's like, college is a scam. He's like, no, 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 no. It's a scam. What other business can make you think that you have to pay for this and you're going to be guaranteed success, but it's going to cost you six figures or, you know, five figures worth of debt? Also, they're nonprofits. They don't even pay taxes. (laughs) Right? I was upset at him. Like, what do you mean it's a scam? No, it's not. And I realized that I'm brainwashed, too. Like, I have to unlearn my own ideas about the American dream and what it takes. Yeah. So is college worth it? It depends. It depends. Was my college degree that left me with just eight grand in debt worth it? Yeah, I had a grand time. Not bad for eight grand. Like I pay, I, I, I got a job so I could pay for rent versus paying for 
you know, student housing to save myself about 10 grand, but it was worth it to me. But I look back on it and I know I could have gotten very similar experience just going out into the working world. I think what we should do as a country is give teenagers, because we are teenagers when we're making these six-figure decisions, more time to decide. You know, gap years are a highly privileged thing, but why don't we give every kid a gap year to figure out what the heck they want to do? But it's not even teenagers, right? It's what we're it's what we're talking about here. It's about financial literacy from my parents. You know, when I sat down with my parents and I knew they couldn't afford college, but I also know that their parents, they didn't get to chase their dreams, right? They didn't have that support. And so when I come to them and I say, this is an option for me. And my dad says, you know, both my parents say, I want you to have this. I believe in you. Like, we'll just, we'll figure out the student loan thing. They're just, they're literally just, they're signing on to the dream. You know, they don't have the financial awareness of what will come down the pipeline and how much interest to, you know, what really like your $40,000 loan turns into after you don't pay it for a certain amount of time, it basically doubles, you know, that information and isn't of wasn't in their in their dna yet and I, I think when i sometimes think about financial literacy and wealth it's like can we arm ourselves with that sort of knowledge uh, of the scam of the options there's there's other sort of you know just yeah. do the work or find a school that's cheaper or you know move to san francisco for a year and then go to school for free <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've had friends who have like, established residency in other states before, you know, so they could go and get the in-state tuition. Hell yeah, there's options. There are. And I think it just takes one person. This is why we have to share our information, right? Intervene. Intervene so that other people aren't having to make the same decisions we are. Shout out to my mom, though, for making me, for not letting me go to Columbia University. I thought that was the dream school. It would have cost me 50K a year to go out of state to Columbia. My mom was like, Mandy, if you don't sit down and go to the state school down the street with a great journalism program, like, you're insane. And I was heartbroken. Um, but you know, there are so many options, like like you said, working, scholarships, grants, you know, there are ways, no matter what, what version of a dream your life is, there's ways to make it happen. But do it for yourself and not because you think it's some guaranteed way to achieve this, like, you know, fake, made-up American dream. Why do we as black and brown communities have to be more wealth-minded? You know, is it just for, is it for the world? Is it for... Is it for everyone? Is it like, is that just another weight we have to carry on our shoulders like now? I think a lot about who's actually providing the solutions for our issues. And I think when we have financial power, we can start providing our own solutions and not waiting around for others to do it for for us. You know, and I think that there's great black philanthropists that I can list off. I mean, Immediately, I even think about Beyonce and what she does through her foundation, Be Good. Um, and, you know, growing up, seeing Denzel Washington supporting the Boys and Girls Club. And there's there are these great builders of wealth in black and brown communities that have turned around and done so much good and helped provide solutions. And that's what that's why, personally, I feel a personal calling to secure the bag and not just do it for myself, but for my community. And how much good could you do? just in your neighborhood, just in your zip code. You know, you don't have to be on like the Beyonce level to make an impact. But what kind of good could we be doing and what kind of solutions could we be making for our communities 
when we have that, you know, financial power. Is there one surefire path to wealth? Um, no, not one surefire path to wealth, but the most, you know, the thing that anybody can do with an internet connection and a little bit of money is start to invest at a young age. So shout out to your friend and, you know, his uncle who sat him down and showed him how to invest at a young age. God, I wish more young people had that same privilege. I will make sure that, you know, my children do and and anyone else I come across, but That is, there actually is a relatively low barrier to entry for the stock market. It's just about educating families and how to do that and how to get into it um, and start saving, not just saving, but actually investing for their children's futures and then showing them how. And you carry that with you into your career. And then from there, it's maybe a 401k. And from there, you know, maybe you're buying a house. You're investing that way. Now, I'm not saying that you have to invest money or capital to grow wealth. You can also invest in your talents and your skills. And I'm a writer myself, right? So for me, investing in a a playwriting course, that could be an investment in me, investing in a little bit of equipment to start a podcast. You know, that for me was an investment that helped me build an additional income stream. So, you know, there's no one way to wealth, but there's like a bare minimum understanding of wealth building that I think should be requirement required for everyone. Absolutely. Across the board. What was the moment for you where it all clicked? You were like, you know, I'm I'm this writer. And then you said, I am going to invest in myself and make this podcast and talk about, you know, money or wealth more consistently. What like really clicked for you? Oh, I mean, that's a good question. I think that for me, it was meeting my community. It was going to a real nerdy financial conference and meeting my podcast co-host Tiffany, who at the time was had a blog and was doing financial coaching, but she was just a couple of years into her business. And I was very, you know, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed financial reporter, really excited by the work that she was doing. And she and I, you know, went on a walk in New Orleans because we're both secretly introverts and needed a break from the conference atmosphere and just needed to like unplug and recharge. And it was that conversation, and I just knew that two black women, you know, sitting, um, you know, in New Orleans having a conversation about money and our hopes and our ambitions of building wealth, I knew how rare it was to have that kind of conversation shared with the world. And so we came up with the idea of Brown Ambition basically right there, and then I talked her into it, taught myself how to podcast, and I've never looked back. I was able to still navigate my career in corporate America very successfully alongside doing my work with Brown Ambition. And so for my nine-to-five entrepreneurs out there, I see you, I was you, and I get it. And for me, it was always having that creative outlet and knowing that I could educate in my own way, in my own voice, um, through that podcast that I just followed that good feeling, you know, and she and I continue to show up each week and deliver that because it feels good. It feels right. And our community has just supported us and uplifted us. And yeah, I think that's when it all started for me. So I didn't have these conversations as a kid. I know other people who didn't have these conversations as a kid. 
here we are now. Uh, if we, what are the ways to get this if we can't afford a financial advisor? Um, is it just listening to your podcast? Are there other podcasts you like? Are there articles? You know, what about if people are like, this is so confusing. What? Like this thing 401 with the denomina and where is my, so what's, where do, where do we begin? Oh, I mean, that's the great, beautiful nature of the internet streets. Like, I know they can be dangerous and, you know, dangers lurking around every corner of the internet, it seems like. But it has done so much good in terms of removing the traditional gatekeepers of knowledge. So with a simple YouTube search, going on, you know, Stitcher, let's just shout out Stitcher, hey, Stitcher, and finding a podcast, you know, that resonates with you that's about business or entrepreneurship or, you know, personal finance, of course, you can check out Brown Ambition. But but we are one of many a wonderful platforms and, and outlets right now for financial empowerment and knowledge. TikTok, you've been on TikTok lately? There, um, hashtag money talk on TikTok is lit and I'm on there. And it is this wonderful community of people who are just completely just pulling the curtain back on so many different avenues of finance. Now, am I saying that this is where you should go to figure out where to invest, you know, that $100 birthday gift from grandma? Mine was usually $5, but I'm just going to be optimistic here for people who are listening. Inflation, an, 8%. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, no, because ultimately you want to get someone, you want to understand, you only know where what your values are, what your goals are, and then you can make the best choices with your money. But as a place to start, absolutely, podcasts, go to YouTube. If, if Find the way that you like to learn and look for the source there. Whether you're someone who likes video, if you're someone who wants a good audiobook or you want to read a physical book, absolutely, there are, you need only look, you need only Google um, to find your way to so many sources like that. And that is really empowering to me. And it makes me feel really hopeful for people who are coming up now. What does generational wealth look like in black and brown communities? Uh, the great, like the great big goal in the sky that we're all striving for so desperately. Um, you know, for me, I'll speak for myself. For me, my my idea of generational wealth is knowing that when my son, uh, who's two and a half right now, his name is Rio, when he grows up, that he won't have to worry about me. That his one of his financial privileges will be having parents who are okay, that he won't have to send money home to or support and that he can make decisions without that additional, you know, pressure on his back. So that's one way I I see passing on generational wealth. Another way is knowledge. So giving him the knowledge so that he hopefully will not have to take a path that will lead him down the road of so much debt that he's so far behind his peers that he's spending so many years digging himself out of that debt before he can actually make some headway toward wealth building. It also looks like owning a home so that one day, you know, if I still have this property, he could potentially sell it, you know, once we're gone, make a profit and use that to buy his first home or something like that. It can also just be a big fat check, you know. It can also be his custodial IRA that he's had, you know, since he was two and is worth over $10,000. Yeah, my baby has $10,000. What? Like, that's crazy to me. I'm so proud of that. But that's part of it as well. But if nothing else, if the money goes away tomorrow, wealth of knowledge, that for me is generational wealth so that he understands at least what to do so that he doesn't have to wait as long as I did to start taking those steps toward building wealth.
Knowledge is power. And Mandy knows that. From what Mandy just said, I can tell she is an amazing parent. The greatest gift my parents gave me was saying yes to me. They said yes to my dreams of becoming an artist. They said yes to the loans when I secretly thought they didn't want to. They believed in me and continue to do so. And you cannot put a price tag on that. Thank you, mom and pops. Thank you, Martha and William Rivas. To get more financial advice from Mandy, listen and subscribe to her podcast, Brown Ambition, wherever you get your podcast. And find her on Instagram at Mandy Money. That's M-A-N-D-I Money. Peace and love, y'all. Next time on Brown Enough, we're talking to CEO and founder of Adonde Media, Martina Castro. Storytelling is the most incredible vehicle for empathy and understanding. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher. It's created and hosted by me, your boy, Christopher Rivas. And I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, senior producer Abigail Keel, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabrielle Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Kevin Tidmarsh. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to this podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. And don't forget to subscribe or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. And go ahead, write us that review. But be nice. Por favor. Thanks. Peace. Witness Docs from Stitcher.